Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone. This is Raul Pal, the CEO and co-founder of Real Vision. And welcome to my podcast. Every week, I'm lucky enough to speak to tons of smart and innovative people in the financial game. I get so much insight from these conversations, and that's why I wanted to start this podcast, so I can share that knowledge with you. I hope you learn from the discussions, and you can always find more in-depth content at realvision.com. Enjoy the show. Matt, great to see you again, my friend. Really nice to see you. It's been quite the year. It has been a hell of a year. Look, before we uh, get cracking, let's go just let people know who aren't familiar, didn't see your previous interview, about a bit of your journey and what you're doing now, because it's super interesting. Sure. So I've spent 15 years in advanced technology, originally in aerospace and defense, metals, mining, and energy. But late in the 2000s, I shifted to the digital app economy shortly thereafter, building digital communities, Barstool Sports, Crunchyroll. Then moved to Amazon, where I was the first head of strategy for Amazon Studios, which operated what we think of Prime Video to be today. Helped take the company from four countries to 200, from less than a billion and a half in per annum spend to 7 billion, from a few million subscribers to tens of millions and then 100 million plus. In 2018, I formed my own company, primarily focused on interactive entertainment, that very quickly moved into what one might think of as a metaverse-focused holding company. We build, buy, develop, incubate research and technology companies in the metaverse, sponsor a number of different crypto endeavors, most recently the Ball Multicoin Bitwise Metaverse Crypto Index. And then I'm also a producer of TV and film. That's a a mouthful. Yes, we we just uh, drop it down to Bam Bam because it's BMBM. But yes, (laughs) such is the trials and tribulations of triple branding. What? attracted you to the metaverse in this journey? Why did you pivot yourself into the metaverse when you did? It's such a fun topic to discuss because the metaverse popularized really in mid-2021. The term comes from 1992 and Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash, but the ideas span back nearly a century. The first known description of VR goggles in the 30s, holography in the 50s, AI nurseries entertaining children in the 50s, that the national pastime would be world creation in the 50s from Philip K. Dick. In 2018, it was evident to me that this long-considered fantastical idea was starting to become a practical business opportunity. That was part one of the attraction. And the second part was it reflected all of my learnings, entertainment, mobile applications, deep infrastructure technology, but then brought them together in an incredibly uncertain way. What exactly does the metaverse require? How do you monetize it? What do you build when? These are big unknowns, valuable unknowns, but they're intellectually stimulating. It's slightly terrifying to have been so early, not you know early as in wrong and early, but trying to define an industry and figure out where to invest in it. So, you know, 2018, not a lot of this exists yet. It's still, oh yeah, they're working on bits and pieces. How did you, you know, you start your new business. What the hell do you do? And there's nothing really there yet. Yeah. 
I mean, look, the, the best examples of success usually come from companies that have been quietly working for decades on a future they knew was coming and was learning what didn't, didn't work. NVIDIA's often the 10th or 7th largest company globally. It wasn't on many radars until the past few years. It only broke through the top 10 recently, but it was founded in the early 90s. Epic Games, founded in the early 90s. Roblox, one of the largest entertainment experiences ever, founded in 2004, launched in 2006, didn't matter until 2017, 2018. And so some of those opportunities existed, but where those companies didn't, the entrepreneurs did. Some of them had spent a decade or more fighting inside of corporation to realize a future they knew their company could never realize, but that company financed their education, their network, their trial and error. And so I got really excited about the number of entrepreneurs I could back for which those products are in some instances out, in other instances imminent, and in other cases, they've already come and went. They didn't work and that's okay. Yeah, because I mean, there's going to be a lot of trial and error here because we don't know. So talk me through the book. Why the hell did you go through the painful journey of writing a book? And what did you want to get across? And what did you learn in it? What did I learn? Look, the most humbling part of writing a book is where you realize what you thought you knew that you really didn't have a handle on, or where you thought that a double click was sufficient, but you find out a triple or quadruple click is going to be required. And part of it was also a desire to expand the audience beyond the techerati, for example, the people who have had a crypto wallet for years, and to explain why the things that I just mentioned matter why the systems that I just described work, but prior solutions didn't. But that means writing differently. It also means finding a new distribution model for that information, i.e. a book. You know, Hopefully it sells well in airport book stands, reaching people that I wouldn't otherwise hit. But the macro reason why I wrote the book is, and this was before Facebook changed their name, I believe deeply that this future is coming. I believe deeply in its importance. And I believe deeply that we have agency over the direction. We've discussed the challenges of the internet today, many of which seem to pervert worse and worse every year. It's hard to produce intracycle change. None of us are changing what iOS wants to do. Governments are struggling to do that. None of us are finding a third smartphone ecosystem. But fundamental change of who leads how with which business models and philosophies, that's a feature of platform era shifts. And so I fundamentally believe that educating people on what's going to happen, when, why, what the competing theses are, and what the differences of opinion mean consequentially, sharing that knowledge and articulating its importance, I believe can positively impact what the future looks like, both metaversal and otherwise, the years to come. What are these competing theses? I mean, I, you know, I obviously no punk 6529 and his idea about the open metaverse. What are the competing theses out there? What should people be looking out for and, and thinking about it themselves? Because there is a battle to be had and Tim totally. Sweeney's kind of identified it. We don't even know which side of the fence Tim Sweeney's actually on either. So talk about these competing theses and then how people should think about it. Look, the biggest one is that of centralization and decentralization. And this is a question of what is, and I'm going to simplify a little bit, a public good in the internet protocol stack versus not. And we shouldn't think about centralization versus decentralization as an either or. 
Neither can win per se. The web was an incredibly decentralized system that nevertheless centralized behaviors and data collection, right? In the sense of we use Google. There are billions of sites. There were many different search engines, but Google was successful. Facebook is successful. The challenge is, and I'm a little afield from your question, how centralized are we? And more importantly, what technologies that we rely on are owned versus shepherded? Most of TCPIP, the Internet Protocol Suite, is shepherded by birds of feather groups, nonprofits globally, the Internet Engineering Task Force. They adjudicate who gets a domain registrar, .com, .ca, .org. They manage the hierarchy of the web. When you go from one website to another or to a page, there's no company that says you can have that link. And yet we found out that the fundamental problem with the Internet Protocol Suite is, and many of your listeners will be familiar with this, we think of it as a thin protocol with a fat application layer. And that's the challenge. There's a lot that's incredibly potent in TCP IP, the domain system, IP addresses, the way in which we manage and share traffic. But most of the building that we experience happens at the application layer. Let's use Instagram. Instagram has your account system. It has your social graph that could be at the IP address level. This is where you start to see the ledger systems and blockchain. It has your files and it has all of the attendant metadata, right? Who liked it and so forth. It turns out that what sits in the application layer, that fat application, is so powerful right? Your account system matters far more than your IP address. Your social graph actually matters a lot more than the hierarchy of the websites because we're mostly in applications. And so a lot of the crypto movement believe that we need to rewrite the internet to more strongly emphasize the protocol layer that no company owns. And this is why you say no company owns your address, your wallet address, right? No company takes custody of your NFTs unless you choose to put them there. And so one of these debates is not centralization versus decentralization. It's what should be in the protocol layer versus the application layer. What's a standard that no one owns versus what's an experience that someone does. That is probably the most constitutionally important area. Another question is, what is the rights of vertical platforms to lock certain things down? This is where we have the fundamental fight with Apple, where they say, we don't control a, lot, control a lot of things, but we control the payment gateway. And so there's this fundamental debate as to, do you have the right to obligate everyone to use other services? We opt in to use an iPhone. I'm guessing you have an iPhone. I'm guessing 90% of your listeners have an iPhone. But we don't have the choice as to what other things in the iPhone we truly use. I'll give you an example before I'll pause. We remember back in 2014, you could get Chrome, for example, on your iPhone. You probably use Chrome instead of Safari. Apple doesn't actually let you download Chrome. What you're actually doing is you're using the Safari WebKit browser that has been wrapped with the Chrome UI and login system. And that means that the fact that you bought an iPhone means that you have to use the App Store, means you have to use the approved app models of Apple, means that you have to use their version of a browser engine, which means their competitor can't launch their own competing browser, which means how you access the web is defined by what they want their competitors to do. And so we have this fundamental question of what sits where, then we have the rights of when you do bundle services, what do you have the right to lock down? And then we have this macro question, which is really who do we want to lead? 
Under what philosophies? And this is harder for us to shape, but we see a very different spirit in the Web3 community around what the obligations of a company is to its community, when and how, how you have to prove that. And so one of these debates is just not really technical. It's actually a question of leaders for the future. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. How do we make people care about this? Because they've just spent the last 15 years not caring. They've basically given the keys of the kingdom to two or three companies in the Western world and another couple in Asia. And they've given it willfully because they thought the trade-off was worth it. Mm -hmm. And what you're trying to tell them is maybe you've made a trade-off you should not have made and there could be a new way. How do we get them to care? So what you just said is astute. It's exactly right. And I think one of the things that we have increasing understanding of, but we still struggle to properly articulate, and that is that, look, we received incredible products. You're absolutely right. Instagram transformed it. Google Earth and Google Maps are my favorite examples. Not because they're particularly pernicious, but Google Maps is incredible. You remember that in 2008. And because it was a two-sided value exchange, we got something great for free and they got something really valuable, we often thought of it as fair, right? It was a trade. What we learned is that trade is not necessarily just. We probably gave up more than we should. We created trillion-dollar companies, probably in excess of the value provided back. But more importantly, they became so entrenched that a better version of that product, if it's even possible can't get market share. And that's where you have this distorted effect. It's where we start to sit here and say, we don't really like 2022, but we're not really sure what to do about it. And part of that relates to that value exchange that we often made erroneously. Part of it relates to the thin protocol, thick application. How do we get people to care? Look, that's the big existential question. It's part of why I wrote this book. We have a lot of regulatory action right now trying to unwind the mistakes of the past 15 years, the EU in particular. And my hope is that as we do that, we're cognizant of the issues that matter in front. Data portability is far more important than charger standardization. And the EU is, I think rightly, focused on whether or not the iPhone should have to use USB-C. That would make me happy. But that's a far less important. And so I think, look, the answer is illuminating what happened over the past 15 years and why, and forcing government action otherwise. Do the regulators even understand this? Right, This is a very dramatic shift in thinking that is still only around a few people, really around the crypto space, and because that's where the kind of probably the central thought process of decentralization is established. And... I don't think anybody trusts it either. The regulators don't trust it. Governments don't trust it because, don't forget, the power of a decentralized network dwarfs that of a centralized network over time. And it's terrifying. Do they understand it? No. I mean, 
Look, there are a lot of issues that we talk about from a governmental perspective as relates to the differences of opinion between legislators who are often in their late 60s. I think the average senator is 68. Maybe it was 58. In either regard, it doesn't make that much of a difference, frankly. And of course, the Supreme Court age and Obviously, the president are much older, right? We're talking about technical misunderstandings, but we're also talking about experience in life, right? I've lived through that shift from the open web with great applications in the late 2000s to the closed one of the early 2020s and what that means for my portfolio companies, for my wants, that older generations haven't, not to that same degree. And now you're right. They talk about the decentralization movement with hostility. Some of it's earned. There's a lot of scams. And where there aren't scams, I would argue that there are such misrepresentations of value that it's tantamount to the same thing. Where I'm more inspired is I do think a lot of companies have seen manifest aggregate behavior in the crypto ecosystem of extraordinary value that makes clear the desire for interoperability that previously was hypothesis, not proven that makes desire or makes clear the desire for custody, for data ownership, that previously many executives believed was a burden, not a feature. And we have, and this gets to my earlier point about the aggregation of resources, seen the ability for collectives to form under the DAO structure, most notably, that is forging policy changes in various states. Wyoming now legalizes the DAO. They were the first to legalize the LLC that is less reliant on whether or not regulators break things about. It's just about whether or not they can facilitate in some areas and get out of the way in others so that we can build, so to speak. But where this is going, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, to me is pretty clear, is we are going to Balaji's network states. There's Because once you create a semi, well, a virtual physical proximity of groups of like-minded people, with a currency or means of exchange and a way of gating that community and proof of identity, you've created a state. Now, decentralized people who believe in decentralization, great, but they are going to centralize around thoughts and ideas and like-mindedness. But they're also going to be incredibly powerful. I mean, one of the reasons I think Facebook Libra got stopped is you have a network of 3 billion people and you're about to give it a currency. They're like, "Uh uh-uh. That's the biggest nation state on earth. How do you think about that? Because obviously, if you're a regulator, if you're the EU, this is a terrifying concept, but it is coming at us faster than I think people imagine. So let's take a look at some truisms. The establishment of communities that seemed diffuse, often were diffuse, but also didn't seem like they could ever scale to much, has been one of these primary observations of the internet. These collectives we thought were obscure, that no one wanted to be a part of, and that could never aggregate into anything meaningful. Because if they were physical, there'd be 30 people. Right. But when they're virtual and they're global, they could be 3 million people. Correct. And it's partly manifest in nerd culture, right? We thought nerd culture was niche. It turns out everyone loves Marvel, for example. Except we're talking (laughs) about that not just in a pastime, but about deep-seated political beliefs. So number one is just the formation of those communities. There's not a year that has happened since the formation of the internet that that hasn't gotten stronger. And part of that is because the tools to those groups have become more powerful. That's what's remarkable. 
So many people find Constitution Dow to be an embarrassment. And of course, there were problems there, left, right, and center, and it was in some regard a failed exercise. But if you take a look at the accumulation of 43 or $47 million in days, you juxtapose that with what happened with GameStonk, a relatively uncoordinated activity that purely relied on the belief that other people would do what you were doing, or seeing potent new tools made available. In Snow Crash, this idea of these smaller network nation states is a primary feature of the world they describe. Why? Because Neil could not imagine this technology existing without those communities formalizing into their own quasi-passports of admissibility, of participation, that then pushes back against the state. But what does that do to society? Because it's, it's going to change what society means, right? Because people backwards looking think of society as the church in the middle of the village with the white picket fence and the pub and the whatever it may be, whichever community you've come from, right? But, but everything changes because you're part of multiple communities all simultaneously where you can be a different person. It's kind of a, it's a lot for society themselves and particularly 68-year-old senators to get their heads around. So I think it changes and doesn't change. It's, kind of, it's easy for a gamer, right? Because they yes. do that all day. But for a 68-year-old senator thing, what, you're going to live in these parallel lives all at the same time with different communities being different people, I mean, and have a system of money? So I think there are things that are similar and things that are different. First and foremost, I think there's a question of how many communities you will participate in. We see evidence of this, some form of analog of Dunbar's number, how many people you can sincerely know all the time. The average person or the average sports fan deeply patrons about one and a half teams. That is to say, they know everyone on the team, their trade history, their performance. It's just hard to deeply patron 10 sports teams. Most communities on the internet, when you're talking about intellectual property, Marvel, Star Wars, DC, is similar. You go deeper in the ones that you really love. And so one is to say, we're probably not going to be deep participants of 20 communities. There are those who can, just like there are people who can intimately know 400 people, but most can't. The second is to recognize that we have always seen multiple different concentric circles of community, but we have always held the tightest community to those that are tightest to us physically. That's your family, followed by your neighborhood or hamlet, followed by your city, province, state, country. We've never really had the ability to have tight, tight ties to those without geographic proximity. But as I mentioned earlier, that's going away as something meaningful. My friends that I play Fortnite with, for example, I might talk to them eight to 20 hours a week sometimes. That's actually closer than most people I know. And so that's a good example of you just can't talk to someone for 20 hours a week every week and not know them really, really deeply. And so that does fundamentally mean that how you're shaped in your views, who shapes them, does go beyond that traditional county riding constituency that elected officials are certainly accustomed to speaking to. Yeah, and it, it feels like within this, um, I thought the Constitution Dow was fascinating because, as you said, it coalesced capital around a single cause instantaneously. Um, and you just think from that, we will look back as that as a moment in history I think we will see it more within the political process, but I think we're going to start to see things like municipalities and other things operating in this 
part digital, part physical world where we can interact more fully with people around the communities around us, even if they're physical. Totally. So last year, I think it was last year, November, there's a DAO called City DAO, which Vitalik was a contributor to. And City DAO was formed in Wyoming, which again was the first LLC state. LLC, an enormous revolution in capital formation, risk-taking. It was first legalized in Wyoming, I think in 1973. If you can believe it, it took until the late 90s for the LLC to be recognized in every state. So we should think of DAO legalization as actually going fairly fast. I think we're at four or five states, but we think of it as overnight. That's not how it happens. City Dow bought in Wyoming a 40-some acre plot of land, and it's administered by the Dow. There is a nominal spokesperson. Again, we shouldn't separate the idea that there's a figurehead from decentralization. Democracy is decentralized. doesn't mean that we don't have tight centralization of authority. But the idea that you can take the establishment of City Dow, they've or they've made it into a de facto state park, anyone can go in there. You can easily combine that idea of physical real estate of real value with that you see in Board Apes Yacht Club, that it's a membership token, that something is only available to participants. Can they easily say you can only go into the state park if you're part of the DAO? Of course. And that would not be an illogical thing to do. And so now you're talking about landowners running through their own native currency in a collective that's international, recognized by the state, that then issues deeds accordingly that is then used for inclusionary and exclusionary behavior. That's revolutionary. And you can totally imagine how one would struggle to digest it, but whether or not that's true doesn't change whether or not it exists. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Fascinating. So let's flip onto a different topic of what you're seeing technology-wise that's interesting you. The thing that stopped me in my tracks recently is, you know, we'd seen a lot of kind of the Decentralands and crypto voxels and all of this kind of stuff. And it was like, you know, this is a long way from from uh, Snow Crash. And then I saw um, 6529's OM and looked into on cyber and how they rendered in a browser. And I was like, wow, okay, because it kind of is now using computing power in a different way. Um, and it was scalable in a way that I hadn't seen before, such that he, speaking to Ryan, who who is the founder, he's like, we don't actually know how many people we can have in one place. You know, the classic problem in Fortnite is you can have a couple of hundred people or whatever the number is. And they're thinking, you know, we don't, haven't tested it yet, but we might be able to get thousands of people in the same virtual space at the same time, communicating with each other. These things are coming really fast. What are you seeing that's interesting and how the hell are you keeping on top of it? That's a really interesting field. And we were discussing earlier what some of the fundamental theses are. And one of those theses is what do we put in the cloud versus what do we put on a local device? How can we use edge data centers versus remote data centers versus the processor in your phone? And how does that vary based on the experience, based on the person? And the answer is 
the good thing about those remote experiences like OM is if you have a good internet connection, it can allow for things that a local device can't. But if you can believe it, only three quarters of Americans can reliably engage in Fortnite. Only one quarter of those in the Middle East with broadband, which is already curated, can. And so there are a bunch of technological problems. I can tell you a lot of people believe that until quantum computing is solved at scale with reliability, most of this isn't going to be possible, at least not as we imagine it. But what really excites me is actually this field of device engineering that seems like it's out of the Jetsons, but is here, it's just not affordable, it's just not widely deployed. And I don't mean VR, but I'll give you two examples. What we call volumetric video, which is my video being sent with dimensionality, also known as holography, exists. And the returns are extraordinary. We talked about whether or not this is good, and it's a good example of 3D. We see that in tests, when you're using volumetric video, it's usually captured with multiple different cameras, rendered against multiple different tapestries to give dimensionality. You're seeing a 50% increase in eye contact, a 30% increase in memory retention of the call, a 20% increase in nonverbal forms of communication. And so this is one of those things where we don't think we can pull it off, except we already have. The other one that's really fascinating is connected. We call it electromyography. And what electromyography does is it captures electrical information sent through skeletal muscles. It's essentially what you're seeing when Luke Skywalker opens up his wrist. And what electromyography sensors and Snapchat and Facebook have acquired into leaders is you put a wristband on. And it captures that information. And it allows you to bring with extraordinary precision your digits or other appendages into a virtual world, not by capturing the information, but by knowing what that information is. It knows how your fingers are arranged. And when you do that into a virtual environment, that's fun. It's easy. It's lighter. You can imagine how you might wear four of those. But what's actually amazing is when you use it to map your body like you might map your arms to drive a bicycle. There are these demos that Facebook has done. By the way, The Verge recently said that they believe their acquisition of this company, Control Labs, might be as or more significant than Instagram. What you do with Control Labs is you can test to map your digits mentally to take control of not just a virtual, but a real-world robot, even a crab. And all of a sudden, you're sitting here wearing nothing but this band, moving your fingers with extraordinary dexterity controlling a robot that you can use in counterterrorism efforts to break apart a bomb if you're a bomb tech. And so you think of these things and you're like, we're now at the point where we're talking about 3D projection and holograms, about capturing muscle movements through electrical signals to steer dexterous robots. That's crazy. And it's close. I mean, it's unbelievable. So we can't avoid the topic. Where are Meta in all of this now? Because I, I think people underestimate them. I also think they underestimate how much they're likely to move into Web3 and embrace some openness, because I think they know they're smart people. Where do you think they are in this? And everyone thinks they're going to be the evil empire, and therefore they will fail. I just don't underestimate them. Love your thoughts. Yes. Well, so now you're preempting the, the book that I wish you so had, but don't need as much as I, I might have thought. Uh, look, I, I think you're right. It's always hard to say that 
Meta is being smarter and also more open than people think because it's not something that folks want to hear. But the policy shifts have been pretty potent. And it's there's a cynical perspective, which is to say they need it. But there's another perspective, which is to say they've learned from it. Meta, more than any other big tech company, has been on the wrong side of platform closure. Their cloud gaming initiative, not allowed. Their creator platform, not possible when Apple takes 30%, because as long as Meta takes 10 20%, there's less than half left for the creator. Their app tracking and transparency incident, which has taken $10 billion out of cash flow this year, also comes from writing someone else's closed platform with no alternative. And so what does this mean? Meta is making really significant commitments to openness. Right after acquiring Instagram, they shut down the API that allowed you to cross-post an Instagram photo to Twitter. They opened that up last year. Of all of the consoles, Oculus is the only one to support rendering through OpenXR, WebXR, OpenGL, WebGL. These are common standards for rendering. Everyone else, Sony, Microsoft, uh, Apple, Google, Nintendo, obligate you to their proprietary stacks. They're the only major console that says you can use alternative payment solution, you can do sideloading. They are working pretty hard to prove that they are a reliable, better, more open partner than all of the other alternatives. Again, you can say that cynically. You can say they're late and nobody likes them. You can also say they've been burnt, or you can just say it's the truth. You need to attract investment. You have to offer better economics than we are used to. But all of that affirms to me that they're not just thinking of this as we can plow through with more R&D on hardware that no one else is close to us on. But I think they're being smarter than people give them credit for. Yeah, that's exactly my impression as well. I think they understand the wholesale change of what is coming. And I think we're seeing that with the personnel changes as well as we change, as it pivots into a different business. So I guess where are Apple in all of this? I'm fascinated to see because they've been pretty closed doors with their AR. But from what I hear in the background, it's kind of ludicrous what they're building. Um, where, what sense are you getting with them? So you're quite right. Look, in 2015, Mark said that by the end of that decade, we would replace smartphones with wearables. Obviously, that didn't happen. We now heard leaks that they've delayed their AR first consumer edition for the third time this decade. This technology has proven much harder to produce than we ever thought possible. A good way to think about that is just to compare the constraints of a video game console to a wearable. Your PlayStation 5 or Xbox doesn't worry about having a battery power. It's got a power source at all time. We don't worry about the weight. It sits in a credenza, not your neck. We don't have to worry about the heat because it has a fan. Well, wearables not just strain your neck, but can melt your face, truly. And on top of that, we know that we need far more in these devices. Sensors, for example, microphones. Your Xbox doesn't have a microphone. And when you take a look at Apple, it's clear that they really think the MVP requirement is high, minimum viable product. Reportedly have 12 to 14 external cameras. The Oculus has four. They're talking about it having a LCD display on the exterior. That's hard. It's more expensive. It produces more heat. It requires more battery. But because they believe the minimum viable product for me to isolate myself from society is actually to still be able to present my eyes to you. 
And so it's clear that they're really out there trying to think about how do we crack this category technically in interface and in terms of ancillary technologies. We typically think of VR just what's a display. They're thinking about it much more broadly. When do they ship? Don't know. But of course, we have learned that they are almost always best at cracking it. One last story. There was a time when pinch to zoom was controversial. Android developers actually came out with the alternative thesis. When you pinch out on Google Maps on an iPhone, you zoom in. Most people said if you're spreading your hands apart, it should get bigger, not zoomed in. You should see more of the map. And so it's a great example of all of these primitives of design that Apple figured out that were more important than the weight of the device, the battery life. And they're doing that, but in multiple dimensions. Yeah, and it's the AR side as well that's obviously going to come ahead of the VR side. And it sounds like there's some AR glasses. What they're doing with the AR mapping of the world brings kind of Google Maps into a whole different dimension. That seems in both your local environments, how your iPhone pings your local environment like 5 million times a minute to give you localized maps of your own worlds. This kind of shit is coming pretty quick now. As far as I can tell, we're going to start to see the AR moves from Apple in the next 12 to 18 months. Totally. At least the start. You're quite right. I mean, you just used it. Right now, new iPhones have ultra wide band. They send radar pings up to a billion a second. And that is getting Jesus. with extraordinary precision. And, and the real thing that's important is it allows for intent. Bluetooth doesn't really know where you are in context, context to a device. It knows that my locked door is there, but it doesn't know which side of the door I'm on. It doesn't know whether I'm walking past it, don't open it, or walking towards it, maybe you should open it. And so these devices are the best example of most companies deploy new tech to unlock the new capability. Apple actually seeds years in advance, allowing them to then light it up when the application is ready. And that's where we can easily underestimate how far ahead Meta looks in product versus how much closer, if not farther ahead, Apple might already be. And final question, Google feels like it's got the most to lose because it really controls all the data right now, much more so than any other entity on earth. And it feels like that data is going to get decentralized. I totally agree with you. Google says its mission statement is to index the world's information and make it accessible and usable. They have limited view into 3D virtual worlds that are centralized. Their ability to index, access, own, recommend, and close down decentralized information is little to none. And so, look, I think they are unlikely to lose most of what they have. It still remains one of the best businesses ever. They're essentially a derivative of the U.S. economy, as discussed, nine-tenths of one percent of all GDP. That's not going anywhere imminently. But they don't have devices. They don't have virtual worlds. Their cloud division has less revenue than AWS does profit. And their fundamental mission seems strained in everything that's to come. Look, it's fascinating. Matt, listen, really, really super interesting conversation. Loved it as ever. Can't wait to read the book as well. 
and uh, look forward to catching up with you with the next, you know, because everything changes so bloody fast that we speak again in another 12 months time and everything's changed again. <laughs> I look forward to it. Thank you so much. The learnings I get from Matt, there's a lot because this space is moving so fast. There's so much nuance, but it's this decentralized mission that's coming with the metaverse that I think is really important. I, I can tell, even though I've not read Matt's book yet, I'm still waiting for mine to arrive, that it's a core part of what he's trying to get across to people, where this is going and why it matters. What surprised me the most in all of this is how fast the big tech companies, how far they are in this whole process. We kind of think that that the, the innovations being done from the small companies on the side, when the scale and speed of what is happening at places like Apple and Meta is still beyond most of our comprehension. Hi, thanks so much for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed it, I've got a free membership waiting for you. If you want to understand the future of everything, then understanding digital assets is the key. We're not ever going back to a pre-crypto world. Blockchain technology is transforming everything from communities to healthcare to real estate to, well, just about everything. That's why in 2020, we launched Real Vision Crypto, the world's premier cryptocurrency and digital asset video channel. Right now, Real Vision Crypto is helping more than 220,000 members understand the biggest wealth creation opportunities in a generation and maybe of all time. And Real Vision Crypto is completely free. To get your free membership to Real Vision Crypto, please visit www.realvisioncrypto.com. That's www.realvisioncrypto.com.